So, uh, Pastor Ryan, thank you for that intro. Uh, I had the distinct pleasure of sitting with the mother of the groom and the mother of the bride this morning. So, and they seem to be doing quite well. But it's my pleasure to be here this morning uh, and to share with you. So why don't you bow in prayer with me. Lord, I thank you that um, you have each of us on a journey. And Lord, you are working and weaving and doing things in that journey. Even though we have our own choices to make, Lord, you are constantly pursuing us. And I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for who you are, what you've done. Lord, that you will convert head knowledge into heart knowledge. And Jesus, I ask that you give me the words to say this morning, that I can share my heart, that I may be transparent, open, and vulnerable. And we just thank you and praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So it is my pleasure to be here this morning. And um, Ryan doesn't know this, but I'm going to try something out on you all. It's a little bit different. Actually, the title to my talk this morning is Gratitude in the Storm. And I will be talking about that. It's about what does it look like to have a grateful heart when you're in a very intense storm? significant storm is the and so what I want to share with you though is a secret a mystery and Paul brings it out in one of his letters Colossians he says this he says this message was kept secret for centuries and generations past but now it has been revealed to God's people what kind of a secret is that for years and years and years been shut in and this is the secret. Christ lives in you. And I've been a Christian now. I've been journeying with the Lord for 46 years. A little bit about myself. I am uh, the father of six children. I'm an attorney. I'm not practicing law right now because of my medical journey. Um, I am married this year for 35 years. Uh, probably the, oh, and I'm, I go to a rather large church down in Bethel, Connecticut. I'm just coming off the elder board there. I'm ministry leader for a ministry called Celebrate Recovery there. If you know anything about that, it's out of Rick Warren's church. It's a 12-step ministry based on the Beatitudes. But probably the most significant thing about my life is that my son graduated from UConn last year, so I figured I'd say that for all the UConn students. <laughs> And he's doing quite well, thank you. He's making his own way. He's on Wall Street right now. He was a finance guy, so he's doing quite well, which is great for me. I actually have four, maybe five of my kids launched, which is very nice as a dad when you can say that your kids are doing well and they're launched. But back to Christ lives in you. So what does that mean? And for me, in my 46th journey, 46-year journey as a Christian with all its ebbs and flows, especially in the last 13 years, that has taken on a very significant meaning. And when Paul goes on in the letter to the Colossians, he talks about spiritual circumcision. And we know that circumcision was a surgical procedure. So we already get a hint that sometimes the Lord living in you brings you through some surgery. And surgery involves pain, doesn't it? And then Paul goes on to say, put to death the sinful earthly 
things lurking within you and put on your new nature. So there's choices we have to make right off the bat. We're going to talk about that. And it's Christ who is at work in you. What I like to do, I'm just, practicing law was a second career for me, and I'm a transactional lawyer. So I do real estate deals and land use things and things like that. And so one thing that, I did, that I've done for the past 22 years is many real estate transactions. So if you've ever bought and sold a home or a commercial building, I would have been an attorney closing that. And what I, why am I bringing this up? Because I like to think of salvation as a transfer. That point in, in your journey where you said to the Lord, whatever term you want to use, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. I surrender my life to you. And maybe you're in the process of that right now. But what I'd like to compare it to this morning is a deed. And how it looks like is this. When you transfer property, when you transfer ownership from the seller to, to the buyer, a deed, a piece of paper is drawn up. It's signed, witnessed by two people, and notarized. And the deed says something like this. I, Peter Scalzo, transfer to, and in this case, Jesus Christ, my life. And that, and that includes my mind, emotions, will, my body, everything about me. And so all of a sudden, I don't own me anymore. And that goes right along with 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul says, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, that you are not your own, you've been bought with a price, and that the Holy Spirit lives in you. That goes right along with that. But I like to think of it more like a landlord-tenant relationship. So right now, Jesus is my landlord. He owns me. And I'm a tenant. And so the point I'm making is the landlord wants to go into all the areas of my house that I've transferred over to him. And yet, it's my choice whether or not I want to let him in and let him into certain rooms, certain closets. And I call that the rubble in our lives. And I do a lot of work in Celebrate Recovery. Recovery, I've been myself in recovery for four years, and you're thinking, well, what did you have, Peter? Is it an alcohol addiction, a drug addiction? What was going on? The answer is no to both those things. It was about being in a place where I was very hurt. I was not, I had secret sins going on. I had things in my life. I had rooms in my life that I wasn't letting Jesus into. And so what happened about four years ago was that I told Jesus that he could have access to certain areas of my life. And what does that look like? It looks like a place where you can go to in church and you can say to another person, this is what I've done. Because in Celebrate Recovery, what we do, and this is not necessarily an advertisement for CR, but this is just to talk about my journey. For the first time in my Christian life, I was able to go into a room and tell other men about things going on in my life, about fear, anger, resentments, about being performance-based for, for my value, about all these things that were unhappy for the Lord, but I was in denial about or I didn't want to, to confess because I wasn't in a safe place. 
And so what happened was in this safe place, and that's biblical, by the way, because in James 5.16 it says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. So anyway, in that safe place, I was able to get in and get some of this rubble removed, which had been there a long time. I'm going to talk about the fact that God will use situations in your life. And I, I like to call them storms. But what he wants to do in that storm, he has a plan and a purpose in that storm. Sometimes we go through problems in our life and we say, why is this happening? Why is it so hard? Why is this so painful? And if you're a Christian and you have Christ living in you, there's a plan and there's a purpose going on. So I'll just go ahead and pull the covers off of my issue. For 13 years, I've been dealing with an intense cancer struggle. It's involved 15 surgeries, mostly down in New York City, it's, and it's gotten very intense in the last year. So I want to talk about that a little bit today. Lots of time when I talk about my cancer struggle, people want to talk about healing and how I uh, think about healing, physical healing in this life. And so I like to go ahead and start out with groups. By, by the way, I've really been speaking quite a bit to groups at events, YouTube, all this, I would say for the past two years. But what I like to say about healing, because I like to go ahead and get that out of the way, and I frame what I think about physical healing in my cancer journey from my cancer struggle with two events that happened. The first one was being in an all-night prayer vigil in my church with the elder board. The elder board said, we'd like to pray for you. We know this struggle is very intense. And so I was in a room with them for most of the night. And there were about 15 elders. Most, most of the elder board were there. And one of the elders looked at me and he said, are you doing everything for this cancer? And he had a look of panic in his eyes. And you know, I thought about that and I said, the answer is no. I'm not chasing cancer cures. I'm not scouring the globe for the next healing. I am just putting this in God's hands. I'm doing what's reasonable. I'm, of course, following doc doctor's orders, but I'm really just seeking Christ in this. I'm just resting in him in this cancer struggle. The second thing, the second event that really frames how I view healing was I got a call from a friend of mine, that's, and what he said was, I am overwhelmed by something. So I said, what are you overwhelmed about? And he said, I pray for people to get healed and they don't get healed. And I quote the scripture verses, and I know I have the right kind of faith, but they're not getting healed. And I said to him, well, why don't you, why are you asking me? He said, because you're in the thick of it. And I said, well, why don't you go ask your pastor or a theologian or someone who knows what they're talking about? He said, no, I want to ask you. So what happened was I went to a lunch with him, and on my way to the lunch, I said, Lord, I need you to give me the answer because I don't have an answer for this. So as I sat down with him, it dawned on me, the Lord spoke to me, and what it was was this, that my personal belief is that I believe Jesus heals today. I believe Jesus has healed me. I call them healing events in the war against cancer in my body. Jesus has delivered remarkable 
healing events in my body. So what I do, though, personally, is when I pray for someone to be healed, I say, Abba Daddy, Jesus. It's my desire for this person to be healed. And then I put it on a shelf. I shelve it. Then what I really focus on is, God, what do you want to do in this person's life through this storm? What are you doing here? Maybe it's not a physical healing. What are you trying to accomplish in this person's life? So, so for me, the storm is all about transformation. You know, in Luke 8, there's probably one of my favorite Bible stories over the past 13 years. And I won't read it. I'll just describe it. It's a scene by the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is done with a day of ministry. He's exhausted. There's a boat. Right, right there, and he tells his 12 disciples, let's get in the boat and cross over to the other side. Many of you probably remember this story. Jesus went to sleep in the boat. These men got out into the waters, and the scripture says that a great storm arose, which must have been significant. I've been to Israel seven times, and it's, the Sea of Galilee is just not that big of a place. But it must have been a very significant storm. And we have some professional fishermen and men who know how to navigate the waters. And the scripture says that they were petrified, that they were doing everything to get the water out of the boat, and they were convinced that they were going to perish. And so if you, if you remember what happened, they finally wake up Jesus and they say to him, we are perishing, do something. And if you remember, Jesus wakes up, goes to the bow boat, says to the wind and the waves, peace, be still, and everything stills right away. But that's not the part of the story that I want to talk about this morning. Part of the story I want to talk about is what's going on with the men. I want to talk about fear. I want to talk about control, anger. I want to talk about those things that I experience when I'm in the storm. I want to control my circumstance, right? You can imagine these men trying to bail the water out. Just picture yourself in this boat. You're used, you've grown up along the shores, some of you, and you know how to navigate these waters, yet you're in this place, and it looks like you're all going to die. And so you're trying to control your situation. You're doing everything within your power to get the water out. It's not working. You're getting angry. Then you're convinced you're going to die. And yet Jesus is asleep in the boat. And I love what Jesus says because after he calms everything, he looks back at them and if you remember, says, where is your faith? And for me, it's where is your trust? So a major part of my journey in the past 13 years has, has been having trust in the storm. And I revert back to that. I might be coming out of a surgery, doing a test. 13 surgeries doesn't cover everything that I've, I mean, 15 Surgeries does not cover everything that I've been through. Over 100 nights in the hospital being told I've been terminal. It does not cover everything. And so those times where I say, well, have I, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? And Jesus keeps saying, trust in the storm. Trust in the storm. There's, um, so many times in the storm, and think about this in your own life, when you're in a situation 
that's too much. It might be a relationship issue, financial issue, work issue, problem with parents, for parents, problem with kids, whatever the storm is. He shows us our, and I put this in quotes, stuff in the storm. In other words, a lot of things, a lot of the rubble or the sin nature, whatever you want to call it, comes out in the storm. The storm is an opportunity for us to be open, vulnerable, transparent with Jesus and others. The storm is a place for us to be dependent on him. You know, we don't want to go through a hard time, yet those really are the times, right, when we say, Jesus, we need you. We need you to show up. So in a way, this is my intro into my story this morning and my topic. There are paradoxes in our Christian lives. A paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true, such as trust in the storm. When you're in a storm, you want to do everything within your own power to get out of the storm, just like the men in the boat. And Jesus said, it's about surrender and trust. That's one thing I love about the work I do with this 12-step program based on the Beatitudes because the first, the starting point is blessed are the poor in spirit. That poverty that says, I can't do it, Jesus, only you can do it. How about this one? That, many, that Jesus said, I came to bring life, right? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came to bring an abundant life. How about the fact that many times an abundant life comes through pain, that surgery process? I think of the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son? He kneels down. He goes down to his knees to eat the slop of the pigs. Remember that? And you, you can imagine what kind of emotional pain he's in when he goes down to do that. He's lost his money. He's probably ruined his dad's rep reputation. But out of that pain that he's in, emotional pain, he repents. He goes back to his father. He turns his life back. James 1 says, this is another one, a paradox. Consider it all joy when you have trials. Who likes that one? I've been in a hospital room before, hooked up to life support, whatever's going on, and I've thought about that. And I would say, Lord, this is not joyful. There's nothing joyful about this. But if you read on in the verse, it talks about that God wants to do some things in your life. And a couple of those things is proven character and endurance. A definition of endurance is patience while suffering. And God values that. Or this one is, um, if you want to be a successful follower of Jesus, you have to perform really well. No, that's not how it goes. To be a successful follower of Jesus, and this is the paradox, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross, right? Well, who wants to take up their cross? That's a painful place to be. That's a life that involves sacrifice. That's a life that, remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, not my will, but your will will be done. And then the last one is gratitude in the storm. 
Who wants to be grateful while you're in a storm? That's so counterintuitive. We want to complain and worry and control and have all kinds of other things, but we don't want to be grateful. These are some thoughts about gratitude that I had. I jotted these down. Gratitude is an attractive quality. I love to be around people who are grateful. I love it when I am grateful. Gratitude is not triggered by wealth or health. I have been around very wealthy and healthy individuals who are ungrateful. Gratitude is intentional for me. I don't automatically wake up grateful in the morning. I have to think about it and be intentional. Even if I don't feel like it, expressing gratitude can change my mood and day. Gratitude has the power to change my attitude and life. I have been in situations where it has literally saved me. And you can still be grateful in the storms of life, not thankful for the storm, but grateful for Jesus as he partners with us in and through the storm. On November 2nd in 2015, I found myself at Lenox Hill Hospital down in New York City, Manhattan. It was to be the 14th surgery in this journey in cancer, which wouldn't let up. As usual, I, I arrived early in the morning and I studied myself and prepared myself for the pain and trauma that accompanied what I would be going through. In 2005, I had been diagnosed with cancer. I found myself at Memorial Sloan Kettering getting major reconstructive work. Basically, the cancer that I struggle with started in the bladder and it's moved throughout my urinary system. Three times they've gutted me out. They've taken the bladder out, that's gone. They've taken the ureters out, which are the tubes that lead from the kidney to the bladder, and they've replaced it with intestinal tissue. Four times they told me that I had cancer. This was one of the times. I knew it was gonna be bad. I had a leading surgeon in New York City. He's a leading surgeon in the field of urology. In fact, Memorial Sloan Kettering sent me to him and Memorial Sloan Kettering is one of the best cancer centers in the world. And he told me, he said, get your estate in order. I knew it was bad. I had scans and tests prior to the surgery. So I was finally cleared to get it done on November 2nd. So I, on November 2nd, I entered into a nine-hour surgery with three surgeons, three top surgeons, because they didn't know what they would find. I was confident that it would go fairly well because I had been prayed up and people around me and myself seemed to say, this, perhaps this will be an easy fix, let's just get in there and see what happens. I was to find out later that what they found was devastating. The cancer was, there were tumors wrapped around my aorta, there were tumors all in the ureters, the reconstructed ones. He said, my surgeon said at one point, they, um, they stopped all three surgeons and looked up at each other and said, what do we do next? Recently, my surgeon told me it was the most complex surgery done in urology and the most complex that he's ever done. Of course, I had no idea any of this was going on. But when I woke up in intensive care that night, my surgeon came in and he said, 
it was much worse than what we thought. Much more work was required. And he said, there's no such thing as clean margins, anything like that. You're going to need a high-powered chemotherapy if you want to survive. So I want to just bring you back into that scene. It's a scene where I'm in intensive care. My surgeon just leaves me and delivers me this news. And I look around at all the people taking care of me, and I decided to lift up the sheet and look at the incision. This is the third time I had it been gutted out, so I had another long vertical incision with all the tubes coming out. And you have to understand that I was exhausted. I was exhausted physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I've been, I had been coming alongside people. I run a cancer support group in my church. I had been coming alongside people for 11 years, from diagnosis to either passing or else survival. I was tired. So as I looked at this incision, I looked next to the sheet, and the, the surgeon had uh, drawn plumbing drawings next to my head because he was trying to figure out what to do. He left, and I, I went into a deep depression that night. And it was what I would call the dark night of my soul. And so in that deep depression, I told the Lord that I didn't want to live anymore. I said, I can't do it anymore. I can't physically do it. I can't emotionally. I can't do recovery anymore. Recovery for me was always long, three to four weeks in the hospital, and then a long recovery at home. And I had just had it. I was angry. I was angry at the Lord. I said, I am ticked off. I just want you to take me right now. And I had a, a night of just bathing in fear and depression and anger, control, all those things that you would expect that night. I woke up the next morning, and my wife and adult son were by my bedside, and I told them, I said, I don't want to live anymore. I don't want to do this journey. I want to go be with the Lord. I'm sick of this. I had done my own research on this cancer, and I knew that a metastatic urothelial cancer cell had a 5% chance of survival. And I thought, I'm not going to go through this whole recovery and then just end up doing an end of life. I just want to skip the whole thing. So my son, who was there, wisely said to me, it's okay, Dad. He gave me permission to be honest. And he stayed with me for five days in ICU, reading scriptures, playing hymns for me. And I still bathed in my fear and depression. I couldn't respond to anyone. I didn't want any visitors. I didn't want uh, to do anything. I was too numb and traumatized. So after about a week, I have a friend in, in Connecticut, uh, Bethel, who came, who actually texted me. And he said, how are things going? And I said, they're not going. I'm in a dark place. I'm depressed and I'm stuck. So he said he went up into the second floor in his house and he got on his knees and he said, what should I do for Peter? And he said the Lord told him to come down. So I am picture lying there in Manhattan in a hospital bed in the telemetry unit where they monitor you uh, having basically I, my system was non-functioning so I had food and water being 
being delivered to me intravenously. He shows up and he slaps an unwritten journal with a pen on my chest. And I said to him, what are you doing here and what is this? And in, in my mind, I was thinking, I'm not going to write anything. I'm not going to do anything. He left, and after about four days, I picked up that journal, and I began to write. The entry about what was going on in my life was about a page long, and it was full of, I don't want to live anymore. It was raw. It was desperate. It was distraught. And I closed my journal, and this is where the Lord spoke to me. And if you're wondering what that voice sounds like, it was not an audible voice. It was a voice in my heart. And the voice was this. He said, it's okay to be real and honest with me. It's okay. You're wired with emotions. You have fear, anger, and sadness. That's okay. He gave me permission. But he said, instead of only those emotions ruling the day, you're going to walk in truth. And so what he did, he gave me 23 truths that I wrote down. It took about two weeks. Each time I received one, I would weep. because They were so meaningful. They were reminders about him. They were, they were reminders of his plan and purpose in this and, and who he is. I felt his presence, unbelievable presence. And he was rescuing me. He was my refuge and strength during that time. He revitalized my relationship with him. And I didn't feel so badly later on about having that kind of lack of faith. I like to tell people that on a scale of A through F of trusting Jesus in the storm, I scored an F. I was too weak. I say to people that Jesus did that journey for me. He did that surgery recovery for me because I could not do it. I did make amends with the Lord, though. And he was gracious, affirming, and loving because that's who our Jesus is. Five of the reminders, I just like to, I'll just give you five of them. Five of the reminders. The first one was what Pastor Ryan read this morning that nothing could separate me from God's love in Christ Jesus. And these were coming to me while I was in my hospital bed. Neither life nor death, nothing. The second one was that. Even though I couldn't feel him, Jesus had been with me. He was in the bed with me. He was in the surgical room with me. He was in recovery. Though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus is with me. The third one was like Paul said about the thorn in the flesh. In my weakness, Jesus is strong in me. His grace is sufficient. If you remember that verse about God said, I'm going to send a messenger of Satan to you, Paul, <laughs> to keep you humble. When I was powerless and not in control, Jesus was doing a big work in my life. The fourth thing was hope is not wishful thinking. It is waiting for a wonderful promise with certainty that it will happen, even though we have not received it yet. And then the fifth one was the incredible assurance of eternity that Jesus gave me. I'm so grateful for that. We have an incredible inheritance. We have a future in Jesus. We we embrace a faith and Jesus is alive in you and it, there's a guarantee that's been placed in you, the Holy Spirit, and that when you transition out of this body, in February of this year, I was told that I was going to die without much time. 
when you consider news like that, and you consider what we have in Jesus, that when we transition out of the shell, we are with him, it is a wonderful, wonderful promise with certainty. So in February of this year, uh, I was told that um, uh, what happened was I was hospitalized for four days. My brother was with me. And the doctors came in, my oncologist and surgeon, and said, uh, there's tumors all throughout your urinary system and outside. And they said, you can't do chemo, radiation, or surgery. We're going to try a new drug on you, immunotherapy. And I, I asked them, I said, how long do you think I have? They said, probably six months to a year. And it'll be one year this next month. So what happened was I went home. I started writing letters, doing YouTube videos for my family. I wanted to leave a legacy. I wanted them to remember me. It's probably one of the hardest things that I've ever done. <clears throat> it took me a week with each child to, to write a letter. It was a letter where I wanted to express my heart, memories of who they are, and what they mean to me. In June of this year, I was in a scope cystoscopy, and my surgeon was in there, and we saw an egg-sized tumor that we were tracking disappear. My surgeon was jumping up and down while the scope was still in me, and I was like, go easy, go easy, <laughs> saying, God is good, God is good. So back to my topic of gratitude, 30. So how did gratitude play in all this? When I was in, in the hospital, I decided to live out Philippians 4, 6, and 7, if you all know that verse. It's be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and, and supplication, with thanksgiving, make a request known to God. It says he will give you a peace that, that surpasses all understanding. And I wanted that peace. So I asked Jesus, what does that look like? So in my hospital gown, hooked up to life support, I made a gratitude list had about 25 items on it from my family, my spiritual journey, my family, ministries, all the opportunities God had given to me. When I was done with the list, I said, okay. It had transformed my thinking in this storm. I was being grateful in the storm. I got up. I did my recovery walks <laughs> because if you've had abdominal surgery, you know how much it hurts, but you have to get up and uh, walk. I had a new pep in my step. Just having that grateful heart in the midst of the storm, not grateful for the cancer. I was absolutely not grateful for being there again and for having that cancer, but grateful for what Jesus was doing in it and through it. After I got home, friends of mine, uh, invited me over to their house, and I brought my journal with them, this one that had the 23 truths in it and points. And when I went over to their house, my buddy was dying from cancer. He had a week left. And I didn't know that at that time, but he, I read, he said, how'd it go in the hospital? So I read him the journal, and he and his wife wept. And I said to the Lord, Lord, is there something in this pain that you communicated to me and to anyone else who might listen. So I ended up all of a sudden being before churches and church groups, events, YouTube videos, 
and all these things. And it's been out of this pain, God has impacted not only my life, but other people's lives. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for what he's done. You know, in Psalm 139, God takes credit for knowing our thoughts, actions, and choices before we know them, for being with us wherever we go, for forming us in our mother's wombs as complex workmanships, and for having thoughts about us that outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. And that's one that I hadn't really noticed, that point in Psalm 139. And if you think about that, it says God has thoughts about us that outnumber the grains of sand of sea. And so we, we normally don't focus on that. But he's thinking about us. So we have Jesus in us. We have Abba Daddy having thoughts about us, thinking about us. And, and sometimes that's difficult for us, right? Because he knows what we're thinking. He knows our actions. He knows what we're going to do even before we do them. But God is not a condemning father that wants to put shame on your life. That's not who our God is. So what I put is I am not grateful for the cancer, but I am incredibly grateful for his presence, peace, and power. For 10 years, actually 11 now, I've been coming alongside many individuals and still am in that journey. It's my pleasure to do that. Since I have left work, which I had to do in February of this year, I have occupied my time mostly with ministry and family. I've been so grateful for that time. In fact, sometimes I wake up and I say, I can't believe I get to do what I'm going to do today. And then a part of me says, don't forget you have metastatic cancer. And I'm like, forget that part. I'm grateful for this whole life that I have right now this time that I have to speak into people's lives, to have people speak into my life, to journey with people, partner with them, to enjoy the Lord. I always wanted Mary time is what I call it. Remember Martha and Mary? Martha was so busy, and Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet. And Martha said, this isn't fair. She just sits there, and Jesus said, that's okay, Martha, that's okay. She wants to consume me. <laughs> and that's how it is with me. I have so much more time to do that now. So I'm going to end it by saying this. Expressing gratitude is a powerful tool for a healthy spiritual and emotional life. It is not based on our circumstances. If you are struggling today with gratitude, sit down with Jesus and make a gratitude list. Begin to develop an attitude of gratitude. It takes intentionality. I don't know if that's me doing that noise, but anyway, sorry if it is. <laughs> is, that, is that me doing that? Or? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. So I'm just going to end with a prayer that's very meaningful for me, serenity prayer. If you would just bow. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will, 
so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. Thank you.